Hello, everyone. Happy New Year's. Welcome back to True Crime and Chill for those who are new or if you've forgotten about us. Um, this show is for the fans, media's one-stop shop for all things true crime. And I am your host, Gabby, aka Moneybags Gabs. <laughs> um, but yeah, Happy New Year's. I hope your New Year's Eve was good. Are you hungover or are you not? You Did you fall asleep early? Did you have any plans? But anyways, I hope that your New Year's was good and you feel rested and ready to start this brand new year. Um, so do you have any New Year's resolutions? And I think for myself, for 2023, I want to focus on being happy. And I know that sounds so cliche because, you know, who doesn't want to be happy? Um, but, you know, 2022 was a really bad year for myself, for my mental health. I mean, I was blessed with the opportunity of being accepted into a social work program for grad school. Um, I got straight A's. In my first semester, I received a ton of support from my family and my friends, and I really got to see, like, who was there for me and who wasn't. But I'm not going to focus on who wasn't there for me. I'm just very appreciative of those who helped me along the way in 2022. But mentally, it was a very bad year for myself, and I feel like I kind of lost a part of myself. Um, and I want to get that back. I want to be happy. I want to be active. And I want to, you know, find myself again and be happy and participate in things. And I know you're probably listening to this like, oh, my gosh, Gabby, you have me crying in the club right now. <laughs> and I'm sorry. But, you know, a big reason why I wasn't so active with this podcast like I have been in the past is because I was depressed. Um, just to put it simply like that, I was depressed. And um, I, w I just wasn't able to put 100% or even like 50% in this show. And when I do these episodes, I want to give you guys quality content that you guys find interesting. So yeah, um, I'm just very appreciative that I have a wonderful family and support system that I love so much. And I hope that 2023 is better and just way more enjoyable than last year. <laughs> but anyways, so welcome to the show. If you are new here, thank you for listening for the first time. What a great way to start off um, 2023, a, a brand new show, new listeners, you know, I, I love that. Um, but yeah, we, um, when I say we, I'm only talking, I, it's only me. Usually I will have a guest or two or three, um, but I am just talking by myself and I wanted to talk about the University of Idaho murders that happened last November. So um, like, almost two months ago. Um, 
it was a very, and it is still very interesting, and we're going to get into it, but if you are new, I love to do a little true crime quiz to kind of gauge where your knowledge is on true crime, so today's no exception. I was, like, debating on whether or not to put a question, but I was like, eh, you know, I think some people really like the question, so I'm going to throw one in there anyway, so... Here's the true crime trivia quiz of the episode. So, Anne Rule, the author of The Stranger Beside Me, described Ted Bundy as what kind of person? A, kind, B, cold and callous, or C, creepy and stoic? If you've read The Stranger Beside Me, let me know. I um, have really wanted to read this book because... I obviously I love true crime stuff and as much as I hate the fascination of Ted Bundy because it's just so overdone and it's annoying this is an interesting perspective on who he is as a person so I have not read this book yet I really want to read it but um, if you've read if you've read it please let me know so let's go through those again. It is A, kind-hearted, B, cold and callous, or C, creepy and stoic. If you guessed A, kind-hearted, you are correct. While working with Ted Bundy at a suicide crisis hotline, Rule saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at the time. She described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. <laughs> Get that. She thought he was empathetic. Um, um, unfortunately, Anne Rule has passed away. It's been um, a number of years since she's passed away. But um, one thing that Ted Bundy was not, or yeah, was not, is em empathetic. He was a terrible human being. And um, just to... And this is, again, why I, I want to read this book, because Anne Rule, she was, I believe, a former cop. So for her to work with him side by side and to think that he was empathetic is kind of wild. I mean, not kind of. It's pretty wild to think that somebody thought of him that way. And he was exactly the opposite. Um, and the reason why I brought up Ted Bundy as this question is I feel like it is definitely relative to what we are talking about. Um, as far as I know, the, uh, the, the killer, or I'm sorry, the suspect in this case, has not been linked to Ted Bundy. Um, I don't know if he has any like fascination with Ted Bundy, but I'll kind of elaborate that as we get into the episode. Um, this might be a long episode. This might be a short episode. I really don't know, but we'll see. <laughs> so, all right, let's get into it. So we're going to talk about the University of Idaho murders. So again, you know, this happened in November, you know, November 13th, early in the morning, between like 3 and 4 a.m., Four University of Idaho college students were stabbed to death in a shared rental home close to campus in which three of them resided. The three v female victims, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, and Zaina 
Kernodal lived at the house while the fourth victim, Ethan Chapin, was Zena's boyfriend who was sleeping over on the night of the attacks. Two other female roommates also lived at the house. They slept through the attacks and were not injured. Um, a lot of people don't really understand how this was even possible, especially when you're being stabbed. Um, obviously, most people would assume if you're being attacked, you're going to scream for your life. And I don't know how the setup of the house really is or like how thick the walls are, what the state of the two other roommates were. Were they like in a deep, deep sleep? Did they have headphones in? Nobody really knows. But yeah, it's very bizarre. So earlier on the evening of November 12th, two of the four victims, Ethan and Zana, were at an on-campus party at the nearby Sigma Chi fraternity from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. They returned home at 1.45 a.m. That evening, the two other victims, best friends um, Madison and Kaylee, had gone to a downtown sports bar at about 10 p.m. from which they departed at 1.30 a.m. A live-streamed video from Twitch from the Grub Truck, a food truck four blocks south at Friendship Square, that's about Main and 4th Streets, showed, uh, showed Madison and Kaylee at 1.41 a.m. chatting and smiling, getting their food about 10 minutes later, and then they left to take what the police initially thought was an Uber ride home. And the Uber was about one mile. The police later rephrased their statement to say the ride was provided by a quote-unquote private party, and they arrived home at about 1.56 a.m. All four students were home by 1.56 a.m. Seven uncompleted phone calls were made from the phone of Kaylee to her former longtime boyfriend, a fellow student, from 2.26 to 2.52 a.m. Madison also called the boyfriend three times with similar results from 2.44 to 2.52 a.m. These calls were investigated with the police, concluding that they did not believe he was involved in the crime. The two surviving roommates had returned home by 1 a.m. and were in their beds on the ground floor of the home at the time of the murders. They were not attacked or held hostage and did not awaken until that morning. The four victims were stabbed to death on the second and third floors in the home where they had been sleeping. The victims were not gagged or restrained, and the walls at the scene were splattered with blood. No calls to 911 were made until 11.58 a.m., many hours after the early morning killings. At the time, a call was made from the inside of the residence from the cell phone of one of the surviving roommates who lived at the home, asking for aid for an unconscious person. When police arrived, the door to the home was open. There was no sign of forced entry or damage inside the home, and nothing appeared to be missing. The two surviving roommates were in the residence when the police arrived and were other friends of the victims. The surviving roommates had called friends over to the home because they had believed one of the second floor victims was unconscious and not waking up 
the identity of the 911 caller was not released and the person was not considered a suspect. Um, so a lot of people are very suspicious or not. I, well, I think suspicious is the wrong word. They're very confused on how this is possible. Um, and we don't really know a lot about what was going on with the other roommates on how they could not know why this, how this could happen. How, how could they have missed this earlier? Um, we don't know if they were sleeping with headphones in or if like they had a sound machine. There's like so many things that people do to block out noise. So they sleep, especially when you share a home with several other people, of course you want to have some sort of quality sleep because it could get loud. I mean, that's just how roommates are. But, you know, how do you miss something like that? And especially when they're saying that there were, there were blood splatters all over the walls, it, it doesn't seem like somebody is just unconscious. They could be, but when you see blood on the walls, I think there it's more than just being unconscious. That's just my opinion, and I think that's what my frame of mind would be if I were in this situation. I am not really knocking how the roommates um, handle this situation because, you know, you have like a really big flight or flight, fight or flight response in the situation. So a lot of people could say like, well, I would have done this and I would have done that. Well, it's really easy for you to say until you're in that situation. So, you know, obviously when you were presented with a dead body and you're calling police, immediately they're going to ask you like well, how you're involved in this and how you're involved with a dead body. And it's, it's scary. It's very scary. So uh, yeah, I mean, I really hope that we learn more about this and like how they could have missed something so glaringly obvious that a, a serious crime was being committed. <clears throat> All right, so moving on. All four victims were pronounced deceased at about 12 o'clock noon. That night, officers came upon Kaylee's dog, which she shared with her ex-boyfriend, alive and unharmed at the house. It was ultimately handed over to what police said was a responsible party. Um, so that's good. I mean, I am a big dog lover for anyone who doesn't know. I have three dogs, which <laughs> is a lot, but I, I love it nonetheless. I love being a dog mom. But yeah, I mean, that is awesome to know. I guess that's like the one bright spot of this terrible crime is that the dog was unharmed, but there could be a reason why. So what was very puzzling about this case early on was there were no suspects, no persons of interest released at the time of the investigation. There was no murder weapon, but all they found was blood. And they just did not, it seemed like they didn't have a lot to work with. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it was very interesting in how there was just nothing that they 
seemingly could work with and to find out that there was a suspect, that they found a suspect, was incredible. So let's move on to the investigation. The investigation of the stabbings was being conducted by the Moscow Police Department, supported by the Idaho State Police and the Latah County Sheriff's Office. In all, almost 130 members of law enforcement from the three agencies began working on this case. A phone tip line and email were created for students and others to submit potential evidence to officials. By December 5th, it was reported that there had been more than 2,600 email tips, 2,700 phone calls, and 1,000 digital media submission from the public to these tip lines. By December 24th, the investigative team reported to have received at least 15,000 tips regarding this case. So one thing that I believe some people kind of lose sight in with these cases and like how they find suspects and how they have leads and how they like know certain persons of interest and how they've known about some of these people. I don't think some people realize how much information these investigative, uh, I'm sorry, investigation teams receive. And, you know, a lot of people are very generous uh, by being honest. So they received so much information that they may have known about Brian. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have. I was trying to do a timeline, but they may they may have known about the suspect from almost day 1. But we don't know that. And maybe we won't know that. Who knows? Um there isn't a ton of information that has been released that we know of. Nothing is really concrete at this time except for seemingly who the suspect is but yeah they may have known about him from early on and they have just been chasing him and they've just been having and all they needed was like the right amount of evidence to have a search warrant and an arrest warrant for him and you know who knows but because they received so much information that they have to sift through, it's very possible that they knew it was him all along. And they were just being hush-hush because, again, another thing that some people lose sight of, when they release too much, then there's a bunch of rumors that start circulating on the internet and people start submitting false information to investigators that kind of deter the investigation and make it difficult and you know someone who they could have had arrested in months time may take years because they're sifting through a lot of um, unnecessary information so I that could be why we didn't know a ton of information about the investigation because they were trying to keep it hush hush and they wanted to keep the tips and everything that they were receiving very minimal and they wanted to sift through credible information. I mean, not saying that like you, you guys shouldn't submit stuff that you think is important. If you think it's important to this case, absolutely submit it to investigative investigators. But 
I have read in other cases that, like, they get overwhelmed. Anyways, um, the Latah County Coroner conducted autopsies on the four victims on November 17th. She said that they all appeared to have been stabbed multiple times with fatal wounds in the chest, upper body, and with a large knife. If not the same knife, very similar ones. At least one victim with what were apparently defensive stab wounds on her hands, that is believed to be Zena. So, again, she it seems like she could have been fighting back. Um, and possibly more appear to have tried to fend off the, the attacker. And the victims may have been attacked while sleeping in their beds. Um, and, and, you know, and that could explain why the roommates really didn't have any idea of what was going on. I, I don't really know. None showed, none showed signs of sexual assault and toxicology reports are pending. Um, and at this time on January 1st, 2023, I don't know anything about toxicology. Um, all four deaths were deemed homicide by stabbing. They were not tied and gagged. No weapon has been recovered, though the police believe the killer, the killer used a fixed blade knife. Um, as far as I know, as of this recording, they still have not found the knife or a weapon. The police ruled out a fellow student wearing a white hoodie seen in the video footage speaking to Kaylee and Morgan by the food truck. The person who drove them home, the two surviving roommates, were home during the killings. And Kaylee's former longtime boyfriend, who she and Morgan had called a total of 10 times that night, the authorities left open the possibility that there, that there could be more than one perpetrator. In a November 23rd press conference, the Moscow police chief said that authorities had received a number of tips, including that Kaylee allegedly had a stalker. Um, and I will get into this. And if I explain it in a way, it could make sense, but nothing has been confirmed. Um, but were unable to verify that claim or identify any such individual at that time. After receiving hundreds of tips from the public, police received information about a, one, a white Hyundai Elantra car that, with a likely model of, year, of a year 2011 or to 2013, which was imaged by a camera in the area of the murders around the time when they took place. Investigators trace ownership of this vehicle to a local individual who was to drive the car with his father to Pennsylvania for the holidays. Investigators had also attained, obtained a, D, a DNA sample from the crime scene that did not belong to any of the victims. Using a public genealogy database, authorities identified a partial match to an individual with a familiar connection to the suspect. So this last part is important because um, I believe it was one of the fathers of the victim. Um, I want to say it was Zena. I will have to double check that. But one of the fathers said that there is a connection. He believes that there is a connection with the killer and the victim 
one of the victims and he's not comfortable explaining this yet. And before anybody jumps and is like, oh my God, why? Let them have their time to grieve. Um, I know that this is an investigation. This is all very important and it's important to give these families the justice that they deserve. Let them grieve. This is already difficult enough, um, you know, and you have to imagine that finding uh, finding the killer is, you know, even more traumatic because now they have a face to who did this crime and who killed their daughter. So you give them their time. If they want to share the connection as to how this all happened, they will. If they don't, then they, they don't. But, yeah, you know, give them time. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> so, a couple days ago, on December 30th, which was huge, huge, because like I said, investigators weren't really releasing a ton of information on how this even happened or who was even involved or what they knew. So the fact that they found a suspect that, and they arrested a suspect was huge breaking news because, you know, we as spectators and just the public didn't know really much of anything. So on December 30th, a 28-year-old man, Brian Christopher Koberger from Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, was arrested at the home of his parents in Chestnut Hill Township in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. He was arrested on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary. He was appointed a public defender and was detained without bond at the Monroe County Correctional Facility in Stoutsburg. He is scheduled to return to court on January 2023, January 3rd, 2023. So at the time of this recording, in two days. Um, and this guy, I will explain the Ted Bundy reference and why I even like made him a true crime quiz of the day. <clears throat> Koberger had attended Northampton come I'm sorry. I can't talk today. <laughs> Northampton Community College in Bethlehem, where he earned an associate's degree in psychology in 2018. After, and first of all, Ted Bundy also studied psychology. Um, after graduating from Northampton, Koberger attended DeSales University. He received a bachelor's in 2020 and a master's in 2022 from DeSales in criminal justice. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. He relocated to Washington to pursue a PhD in the same field at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, and had completed his first semester at Pullman nine days before his arrest. So some people and a little fun fact about me, I'm very, very bad with geography, and, like, my concept of geography is a little skewed. Um, so when I learned that he was living in Washington at the time of these murders, 
I was like, so how does that make sense? That seems very deliberate that he is traveling from Washington and traveling to Idaho, which I thought was pretty far. And depending on where you are in Washington, it can be. But where he was at in Pullman, Washington is super duper close. It's about 10 miles away from Moscow, Idaho, where the University of Idaho is located. So it's about 15 to 20 minutes with a car. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, and now when you factor in that, that puts a lot of like, you know, bells, bells are starting to ring. Like, okay, so he's actually really close to campus. Now it makes sense on how he could know of these girls and how he is connected. I mean, he very well could be a stalker of one of the girls because of how close he is to campus. Um, so he's a very interesting individual. And I say interesting to be nice. Um, you know, I'm kind of like really creeped out by him because of his... He he was pursuing criminal justice, and this reminds me so much of Ted Bundy because of Ted Bundy studying law. He was studying psychology. I mean, he was studying so much, and a lot of people believe he did that intentionally so he could like learn more about people, how to um, connect with people, how to read people and, you know, with law, how he could like learn the system and how he can, you know, learn how to defend himself and learn how to manipulate the system. It's just very interesting. And, um, I feel like Brian Koberger resembles a lot of like Ted Bundy's traits and you know for those who know of Ted Bundy Ted Bundy also went to school in Washington now did Brian do that to like um kind of what is the word that I'm looking for like have a connection with Ted Bundy possibly but we don't know that we may never know that um but yeah, that was also a very interesting thing because I do remember that Ted Bundy went to to school in Washington and um, I think Ted Bundy went to the University of Washington and Brian obviously went to Washington State. Now, did Brian study criminal justice to also understand the system and how to kind of manipulate it and how to manipulate people? Possibly. We don't know that yet. <clears throat> but, you know, one thing that I did find or that I learned that I thought was also very interesting and bizarre is after the murders. So this happened in November and school is obviously in session. The semester's not over in November is what I mean. So school's still in session. And after the murders, Brian returned to school and attended class as usual where classmates recalled that they discussed the Idaho murders with Brian present in the room. Reportedly, Brian participated in this conversation and was emotionless. 
I mean, that is like one of the creepiest things that you can experience where you are in the room of the killer of the topic that you are discussing. You are having conversations about this topic with the man who allegedly committed these crimes. And I am very interested on like what he had to say and how he contributed to these conversations. Like, was he very nonchalant about it? Was he like, I mean, I would love to know what these conversations were like. And investigators are trying to keep people from posting these things on the internet and they want um, classmates and people involved in this to go to investigators first so they have this information because they could be used as witnesses in an upcoming trial. Um, so another thing that is interesting about Brian is reportedly he is vegan and he was very OCD. <coughs> excuse me, very OCD about his veganism to the point where like he would not want to use pots and pans that were used to cook meat. He wanted fresh pots and pans to cook his own meals that were not touched by meat. So this could explain why the dog was spared and unharmed. Because he possibly was very serious about his veganism and he didn't want to harm the dog. And if that if that's true, I guess that's the nicest thing that he could have done in this situation. Um, you know, there is just so 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 much about this guy coming out like left and right and I feel like at some point I am going to have to do another update whether it's here or on TikTok because obviously within a couple days more is going to come out about this guy um one thing that I did find I found well I found a few things so I'm not done yet <laughs> So something that I did find, I think it was on TikTok, a girl who I believe she said her brother was friends with Brian, I believe back in high school. And she reported that Brian was a big heroin addict. And when her brother got married, Brian was invited to the wedding and at that time of the wedding, she saw Brian and believed that he was clean of heroin. And it was like um, a huge thing because it was like the first time she's ever seen him clean. Um, and she provided proof with like pictures of him and her brother. And I think she was also in the photo. So that was even more proof. She provided like... Um, yearbook photos and when you look at these photos of him and his mugshot and his yearbook photos and photos of him with friends he has a lot of deadness behind his eyes and I remember when I saw his mugshot for the first time I noticed his eyes immediately it felt like there was just nothing behind them there was no emotion there was no anything he, was, he looked like he's dead inside. And it seems very sociopathic, if not psychopathic. This is somebody who 
I believe would do this again if he was not caught when he was. If investigator, investigators gave him more time, I think he would have done something else. So another thing that I want to share with you guys that I found to be quite creepy. Now this is all speculative with this with what I'm about to show you or present to you, because you can't see it, this is a podcast. Allegedly, he, Brian, may have called into a live stream true crime podcast to possibly talk about the murders. Um, And if this is not true and this is not him, then... Just disregard this, and somebody is just probably being disrespectful by acting like it's him. But anyways, I'm going to play this clip, and um, I'm trying to adjust the volume so it's appropriate, but I guess also adjust your volume accordingly if you feel like this is too loud. So this is the clip of possibly Brian calling into this podcast. I live in a college town. And I've worked with uh, probably at least 10 Sigma Chi members. And, you know, the one thing that every single one of them I, I, I feel like has asked me is, if you were going to kill somebody, how would you get away with it? And I just wonder if maybe, if maybe this is, Nothing more than some kid in a fraternity trying to prove himself. And that was it. So you said some, you worked with five or six Sigma Chi kids and they asked you how, if you can kill somebody, they can get away with it? Yeah. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Oh and my God. I know that's a thing that just like maybe people say, trying to like have interesting conversation, but like just in my head, it's like, this is, it's always been these, these dudes that were in, in the fraternity. Hmm. And, and so it makes me wonder if it's a thing that that's in their, in their like culture that they ask to see how smart you are and whatever, and what kind of answer you come up with. And someone took it too far. Oh, uh, who, uh, what, what kind of dudes would ask you that? That, that's, that's crazy as shit, man. That's a that's an outrageous statement, man. I, I mean, I'd write their names down. Yeah, man. Like I, like I, like you know, I like horror movies and all that kind of stuff, and I'll watch those kind of things. But like when someone like in person says some stuff like that, it's kind of like jarring. It's like, what? Why are you saying stuff Stop like the that? Cow. Yeah, that's I uh, man. Who who said that to you? So yeah, that um that is believed to be Brian, but nothing has been confirmed. The hosts of that podcast have submitted that clip as possible evidence. Uh, I'm sorry, evidence is the wrong word to say. They submitted it to the investigators to see if it is Brian and to see what kind of um, connection. So another thing that I thought was interesting, and this could be 
a big indicator as to how investigators were able to link Brian to this crime is that Brian, as of 2021, was working as a security guard at a Pleasant Valley, Pennsylvania school district, and he was on leave without pay. Now, what that means, I don't know. I don't have any information about that, but he was working as a security guard. And one thing, when you work in a school, you have to get fingerprinted. And then your information is in a database. So Brian, as far as we know, has not committed any crimes. So him being in the system is non-existent. So him having these fingerprints in the system is huge. And it seems like they may have retrieved some fingerprints or possible DNA that they were able to, you know, use as evidence. And then they find his fingerprints and they were able to make some sort of match. And that could also be how they found the car, how they were able to link the car to him. And another thing that I found this morning is one of his professors, she is a forensic psychology professor and serial killer expert, Dr. Katherine Ramsland, reportedly taught Brian at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. So let me, let me, so Catherine wrote some books actually on serial killers. So she really knows her stuff. She knows a lot about criminology, psychology. She knows a lot about this stuff. And the fact that she taught Brian and he learned about serial killers from her is absolutely insane. And that could have like fed into his, if he has an obsession, that fed into his obsession with serial killers. This is, it's just all very interesting. And there's just a lot that has been coming out little by little about Brian and who he is as a person. And it seemed like Catherine really had no issues with Brian. She hasn't really made too much of a statement because of legal reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot and there will continue to be stuff that is coming out. Um, this could be a targeted attack. We don't really know really anything about what is going on with him or this investigation. Everything is being kept hush-hush. He could be a stalker. He could be a lot of things. Um, but one another thing that I found was... Somebody who I believe worked with Brian at the high school that he worked at, his name is Casey Arntz. It is believed that 
Casey was one year ahead of Brian at Pleasant Valley High School and said that he was known to have a temper and that he did kickboxing, possibly as a way to get his anger out. I'm sorry. Casey is a girl. I, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> I, I apologize. So Casey said that his mother had sometimes worked as a substitute teacher at the high school. So this is very interesting as well because, you know, Brian could have had an anger problem. We don't know. We don't know. Um, but I think that's really all I can find at this time. Please be careful on stuff that you see on the internet and people trying to submit false claims and stuff like that. So when there is more information that comes out, um, I guess I will do an update and maybe it'll be in a podcast form depending on how much information comes out or it might be on a TikTok. But as for now, I think that's all I have. And you know, thank you for listening, um, and I hope to see you guys soon. So have a great New Year's Day. I hope 2023 is good for you, and stay hydrated, and use your moisturizer, drink water, <laughs> and as always, please visit ForTheFansMedia.com. If you want to interact with me on Twitter, you can do that. You can do so at at chill underscore true on Twitter. Um, please listen to all of my other episodes. I have interesting con uh, con content. I am so sorry. I cannot talk today. But yeah, please enjoy and um, have a good one. Bye, guys.